This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by Newcom, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on newcom.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to bring you a unique interview I recorded whilst attending the Brothers Helping Brothers conference in Ohio. Two good friends that have both been on the podcast individually, Orlando firefighter Jeff Orange and Orlando Police Officer Raul Rivas sat on stage with me and I interviewed them side by side. 
What made this conversation incredibly powerful and unique is their different perspectives of the events leading up to, during, and after the Pulse nightclub shooting here in Orlando. So as you will hear, Jeff's perspective comes from a mental health lens as he stood up their peer support team prior to this event. Raul had an up-close and personal experience being one of the SWAT operators that responded and ultimately killed the shooter. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. Now, one last thing to mention, I am going to upload the video of this interview onto my YouTube channel as well. So if you wish to watch it, you can there. So without further ado, I welcome back onto the Behind the Shield podcast, Jeff Orange and Raul Rivas. Enjoy. Okay, so we'll start with you, Jeff. Give me a little insight into where you were born um, and then what your kind of career aspirations when you were young. Yeah, so I was uh, born in Buffalo, New York. Uh, we moved when I was pretty young uh, to Orlando, the Orlando area. My dad was sick of the cold, um, sick of the furnaces, sick of the snow. Uh, grew up. A mile down the road from where I live now, my childhood was pretty spectacular. Um, I did have a raging alcoholic and for a dad and a very codependent mom, but I never didn't feel safe in my house. I'm the youngest of four. Uh, my next oldest sibling is five years older than me, so I was 100% an accident. Uh, uh, but with that, you get a little bit of strength when you're not supposed to be there. And nobody planned for you to be there. Um, great relationship with my parents, with my siblings. Uh, great family life growing up. Um, we had our challenges, but I don't think I realized them until I really started unpacking it in therapy. So use that as a caution. When you go to therapy, you might find out that you actually did have some childhood stuff that happened to you. Um, but no, my my childhood was great growing up. Uh, what what I found through all of it was community. So I, when I was younger, I wasn't very close to my siblings because there was such an age gap, but I was close to my friends. Um, I found a really supportive culture in the punk rock scene that was in Orlando at the time, the skateboarding scene. Um, I was all in and I knew from a very early age that this is what I wanted to do. And I found a, few people in that punk rock community that also wanted to do that as well, which I thought was pretty amazing. And then when I got into the fire service, this was exactly what I thought it would be as far as community goes. I found some of my best friends in the world were people that were sitting across the table from me, came from different walks of life, 
came from different perspectives, different views, but I found a community in there. And I think that that's helped me through a ton of things. If I hadn't had that community, that, um, that cohesiveness with, with the crews that I came up with, I don't know that I would still be in this profession. Um, and yeah, it's no surprise to anybody in my family. This is what I always talked about doing Halloween. I was, a I would dress up as a firefighter and now I guess I get to wear the, the gear that goes along with it. My parents said I was a mistake and I'm the second oldest. So <laughs> that's kind of rude. Um, when we're going to go all the way to where you are now, when you look back, this is an important point and we'll get to Raul's kind of on ramp next. When we think about mental health, we always talk about, well, you were at Pulse. Well, you know, you were on the Vega shooting. You were insert thing here. And only a few years ago, it was I educated like, oh, childhood trauma is so important. And no one ever asks what happened before you put the uniform on. They assume that your trauma started on year dot, the moment that badge hit your chest. When you look back now, what are some of the things, I mean, you mentioned alcoholism, what are the things that you would consider a, a fracture to the foundation that you brought into the profession? Yeah, I mean, dealing, uh, if, if anybody has had a, an alcoholic parent, I think you can probably relate. You're just on eggshells. That, that's it. That's how I can describe it. My dad was a very kind and loving person. Um, I would go to work with him in the summers. I was just telling the story. Actually, we moved down to Florida to escape the cold. So in the winters, if it got below 60, my dad didn't go to work. He would get grumpy. He'd be like, that's why I moved from that godforsaken place. And, and I would get a snow day just because it was 60 degrees out. Um, but we would go to work on the way home. There's a little gas station and we would stop. He would get a six pack, sometimes a 12 pack or a 24 pack. And the six pack is gone before we got home. And that was every day. Every day, the six-pack is gone. He'd crack into the 12 or 24-pack. If it was a 12-pack, that was gone too. And if it was a 12-pack, there was probably scotch after that. He was a professional. Um, I never felt threatened. I saw some things with my siblings occur that I never had to. And my dad made a very tough decision when I was 13 years old that it was the alcohol or the family. And look, I was lucky enough that he chose the family instead of the alcohol. But there was always that eggshells. And I remember even the little things like like some of the untruths, right? So we would get home from work and my mom would say, how many have you had? He'd say one. She's like, one? I'd be like, dad, I just saw you drink six of those things. Like in a mile, I saw you drink six. Like you put any college kid to shame. It's like, well, it was one kind. It was Budweiser. That's all. I just had one kind of beer that she didn't ask for a specific. And so I would see little things like that. And I would see my mom avoid conflict at all costs. And that's definitely carried over into, into how I converse, especially with my wife. Some of the patterns that I fall into, the avoiding the conversation, feeling like I have to walk on eggshells, making sure that I avoid whatever kind of conflict or diffusing it with self-deprecating humor sometimes. I don't know if any of you have picked up on that throughout my uh, presentations. Uh, but I think that those things are definitely things that I learned about myself that that have carried with me. Again, not a violent upbringing. Um, I never felt unsafe or unloved, but there are things that you can't avoid picking up from your parents. 
intentionally or not, that aren't going to carry with you. Uh, I'm fortunate enough with with my wife. I was telling the story the other night. We're coming up on on retirement age. Our kids are almost out of the house. We have a great relationship, and we're still going to see a marriage counselor. Things aren't even bad between us, but man, things are so much better than they've ever been after 20, 21 years. Our anniversary is next month. After 21 years, and proactively, we just went and saw a counselor. And then I started learning about all these things that I carry into this relationship and it's just gotten better. So I would say that the biggest thing to wrap up a long story, the biggest thing that my takeaway was I always felt like I had to walk around on eggshells so that I didn't disrupt what was going on because it was, it was right there. The balance was always right there. It was always really close to volatile. And I thought I played a way bigger role in whether whether it was volatile or not. Well, again, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs is still security within that story. So thank you for sharing that. Raul, firstly, again, where were you born? What were you dreaming of becoming? All right. Uh, well, first, I'm nervous. Uh, <laughs> you and me both. I'm like the only cop here, I think. Right? <laughs> <laughs> So, but y'all, hey, it's, it's been great. You guys have been real nice to me. And, and last year when I was here, it was amazing. So I want to, you know, thanks uh, Jim and Nick of just inviting me back and and you having me here. Uh, you guys made me feel at home, even though you're hoes draggers. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so I was born in New York um, in Manhattan, um, moved quickly to Jersey. You know, for my family moved to Jersey pretty quick. Uh came down to Florida when I was nine. Uh, so I'm listening to you. I'm like, shit, it sounds like the same thing, right? So, uh, you know, we wanted to get away from the cold, you know, so we, we came down to Florida when I was nine years old. Uh, you know, just like he was saying, I had a, you know, really good family life, you know, parents there loved on me. Uh, I, I played sports, you know, uh, got a scholarship, played some football, uh, after the second year of uh, football, I joined the reserves and, you know, I said, okay, I only got a partial scholarship. So I said, okay, I'm gonna take a break. I'm gonna go down to UCF transfer over there and, and did my reserve time. And that's right when desert storm happened. Uh, so I ended up going to the desert for 10 months, uh, and the reservist. And, uh, that was, that was different. Um, and while I was out there, I'm kind of, you know, contemplating the meaning of life as scud missiles are going over the head and it's like, okay, what do I want to do with my life? You know, and, uh, and school wasn't seeming like the thing anymore while I was out there. And, uh, you know, kind of started thinking about the police thing then, you know, and people were talking about it and like that, that shit sounds like, can I give me a curse? Sorry. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, you can. Right. <laughs> That's why I have an explicit writing on my podcast. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I'm thinking that shit sounds fun, you know, and, uh, uh, I, you know, came back and I put an application in it and I, you know, shocked that they hired me. Uh, cause while I was loved, uh, I did some stupid shit. You know, uh, when I was a young kid, I may have fractured a minor law or two. So, uh, I was shocked that they hired me, um, got hired, uh, and really, you know, put my head down and started working pretty hard. Um, Fast forward, you know, I was just listening to him talk about when he went to therapy and, and kind of finding, you know, I call it peeling the onion, right? So when he 
peeling, peeling the onion back, uh, and I'm in my forties now. We're talking about peeling the onion and, and I don't talk about this a lot, but, uh, shocked that I had put some memories in the back of my mind and just kind of forgot about them. Shit that happened before we left, uh, up North, I had a family member touching on me, you know, and, uh, and I, I just, I hadn't thought about it. At least I didn't think I did come to find out. That's a lot of reason why fuck things up, you know, throughout, throughout my, uh, my life here and there, I have a, like a self-sabotaging thing, you know, I kind of make sure it may be looking good, but I, I got to figure a way to mess it up. So that, that's kind of how my life went. Um, and, and I carried that into the career, into the career with me, of course, my relationships and, and, uh, and of course, uh, pulse happened and, and, and that's, you know, pulse was the, was the, and we'll get into it, but I always tell people pulse is in my story, right? Pulse, uh, things that happen at pulse, uh, horrific and tragic, but it's, but it's not my story. It, it, it did let me know that there was help out there. So I had to go through that to kind of figure that out. So it's, that's me. Well, I appreciate your courage. I don't know if everyone has the same perspective that I have, but 841 episodes of which 500 plus 600 are responders or military. The number of people that have significant trauma in their childhood and especially the sexual abuse as a kid. And then that feeling of guilt and shame over that and the, the post-traumatic growth when these people have then unpacked it and forgiven themselves because they felt at fault for some reason. I mean, I, I didn't think eight years ago I was going to have these kind of conversations, but this is what we need. Otherwise, Jeff goes to 10 counselors and does the MDR and like, Jeff, it's pulse, 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 pulse. Well, no one's talking about that. You know what I mean? So it's important. So thank you for sharing that. So back to you, Jeff. As you enter Orlando Fire Department, talk to me about the mental health landscape then. Like, What was the ethos? I mean, obviously, we, you know, most of us had the same same kind of thing but just kind of paint the picture because of obviously where we're going to go with this is this a comedy show <laughs> <laughs> so i mean i think like everybody i got into the i got into the fire service and there there was nothing right alcohol was our mental wellness protocol um everything that we did involved that um we would have people come in and they were hammered and it was easy at the time because we had uh, four-person engines, so we could just drop down, have them go sleep it off, and start a line. And and uh, I did. To be completely honest, I don't have the story that led me to this. One day, I never thought about it. The next day, I was like, "Holy shit, we need to do something about this." That's how it was for me. It was an immediate switch. Um, I've had. Uh, in my family, I've had, we have a lineage of, of mental health issues. Uh, my cousin wound up hung, uh, hanging himself um, years ago. Uh, his brother was the one who actually some joggers found him. He hung himself from a tree. His, his brother went out there and had to help get the body down. And then a year almost to the day, my aunt takes her life same way she hung herself as well but I never realized that this could happen to me. 
or us or the people that I work with. I mean, we sit around, we bust each other's balls all day long. Like this is a, this is a frat house. This is a clubhouse. It doesn't happen to us. And then I started seeing the, the rates of suicide. And, and actually I didn't even, I didn't even see it. I just was in the right place or the wrong place. However you want to determine it, depending on looking at where I'm at now, but we were teaching a class down at, uh, at our EMS and it was about customer service. So I'd broke my leg skateboarding. It was kind of my last wake up call. That's, that's my trauma. Um, I didn't know when to quit uh, a sport like skateboarding, but I broke my leg. I, I got pulled down on light duty to our EMS division. And I was told you're going to teach a class on customer service. And this, uh, if, it was probably the scariest moment of my life because we have to take people offline, tell them how they need to treat uh, the citizens better. And that goes over really well when you're telling people what to do. But what they let me do was they let me just kind of run with it. So instead of just focusing on the external customer, we started focusing on the internal customer and saying, what can we do better for us? At the time, we didn't talk about it. We absolutely didn't talk about it, but enough people came up to me after that class and said, look, we've got our annual physicals. We've got our pure fitness assessments, but we do nothing for people who are hurting up, up here. And, uh, and so me, and luckily one of my mentors, uh, at, he was assigned to EMS at the time we started looking into it. We're like, something's gotta be done. Like, this is crazy. This could happen here, and we're shocked that it hasn't, and it probably already hasn't been swept under the rug. There's a couple instances where people are sure that this was not accidental, this was a suicide, but we didn't, we didn't take into account. That's weakness. We don't talk about that. In fact, one of my firehouses still has, and I think I told this yesterday, still has a, a sign above the door that says, check your feelings at the door. It was my old firehouse still has that sign. And I walked in there not long ago. I said, I'm, I'm taking a picture of that sign. And they're like, Oh, you're going to take the sign down. I'm like, no, no, no. I love that sign. How are you doing? Let's check our feelings at the door. How are you doing, man? They're like, ah, you ruined it. I can't believe you ruined it. The one cool thing we still have in our firehouse. You just took it away from us. But that's how it was. It was check your feelings at the door. Work stays at work. Home stays at home. Those two things don't coincide. And if they do, we need you to leave. Well, Raul, I'm going to go a different direction with you, more operationally. So now you go into OPD, you join the SWAT team. Talk to me about, through your lens, the preparation from a mass shooter perspective prior to Pulse. Shit, that was the thing back then. Uh, so, you know, I, I came on, I'm an old guy, so let me just set the stage for you. I came on in 92. I know some of you fuckers weren't even born yet, right? So, uh, <laughs> uh, so I came on in 92. I got on the SWAT team right at 2000. Um, and, you know, because of just my sports background and, and like you guys just worked real hard, I wanted to always be the tip of the spear, be that guy, the first one through the door. Uh, never wanted to be a sniper. They're just, they just too far away, right? I wanted to be in the action. And uh, that's, you know, active shooter hostage rescue those are the things that that's the coup de gras i mean that 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 is the 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 worst of worst that can happen and i wanted to be the one amongst my teammates to to 
to, to save the day, if you will, you know, uh, and to be there for my teammates. And that's, that's a little more of a kind of what it morphs into, you know, you just don't want to miss the day that it happens because you can make a difference to make sure your teammates come home. Right. So uh, that's kind of my attitude. And, and, and so we, as the world started changing, right. An active shooter became a thing. Cause I just don't, in the beginning of my career, I'm not sure that I remember active shooter being a thing back in 92. It probably was, but just not, if, if you guys know what I'm saying, but as that kind of morphs uh, into being a thing, I mean, this 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 one of the things we just, we, we practiced and we got to the point where we always knew it's going to happen here one day, you know, and, uh, and, and, and it actually, it happened before that. We actually had an active shooter that happened at the uh, Travelers Building, uh, which was which was, it was an eye opener. He went in, shot a couple of people, didn't make national news, and came back out. We caught him a few miles away. Uh, it didn't make national news, but that was an eye opener for us. Like we, the police, the fire, we knew, we knew that it was coming. You know, we didn't know how, didn't know when, and all that good stuff, but we started ramping up even more. So uh, I think we were pretty focused uh, tactically on getting the job done whenever it did happen. Um, you know, I don't know that anybody thought about it would be a club. I think everybody was thinking it was going to be a school or a business. That was what we practiced. It was always going to be in a high school or in a business somewhere, you know, somebody pissed off at, you know, being fired or whatever. Uh, the club is, I think, what, what shocked us. And, and like you already alluded to, Disney Springs. I'm not sure who's been to who's been to Orlando. Okay, okay. Who's been to Orlando? Not just Disney Orlando, but Orlando Orlando. You see, some of the hands went down. See what I'm talking about? So <laughs> it, it's a different thing because you know, and, and you guys, you guys don't know, but you can go into Orlando, and they've got it figured out now. Where you, when your plane lands, the magical uh, bus, you just get off the plane and go to the bus, and you're bags will magically appear on the bus and then when you go to disney you know to whatever resort the thousand resorts they have your bags will magically appear in your room so they've got it all figured out you don't got to come off disney property well disney springs where he's talking about earlier that's an entertainment district and that that means there's a mall there a movie theater restaurants at thousands Thousands of people walking around at any given moment when it's open. The carnage that would have happened there would have been just astronomical. So, um, yeah, but I think we were, I think we were, uh, we were laser focused on something like this happening. We were, uh, we just knew it, it would come. I think I, I articulated that after the event, just to yeah. put my perspective for a second. When I went back and said, what are we doing? They were like, not like nothing changed, wasn't even mentioned. Then they got upset when I mentioned it. Like, hey, you know that we almost had all these people killed. Nope. Don't want to hear it. Disney's different. Um, Just say it. <laughs> Y'all, listen. Y'all, we don't fuck with the mouse. Um, I mean that. Uh, sir, if I'm, if I'm lying, you can, you know... It, we don't play with the mouse, and, and so every 
everything you say about the mouse, you measure a little bit. So uh, Disney won't talk about it. I mean, we've asked them to kind of, uh, you know, be included in any of these talks that we do about what happened there. They're just not. They don't have any interest in it. They, they, they acknowledge that he came there, but that's really about it. And they, behind closed doors, they did a their systems of how they do stuff is what helped deter that guy from doing stuff at Disney. But they don't want any parts of that because that shows that they know that shit's unsafe in the world, right? So, And they don't want anybody to think that Disney acknowledges that the world is outside their, their walls, right? So Disney's a great place, and I love Disney, and everything's good. <laughs> All I'll add to that is <laughs> complacency kills. So, you know. All right. Well, prior to the event, you get this new assignment. You start realizing that our people need customer service too. Talk to me about the creation of the peer support team and the, the time, like when it actually was put in place, because it's kind of important. Yeah. So we, uh, we started ours probably late. 2012 i would say so we've been around only for about 11 years but even then there was nothing in florida that resembled what we thought we needed to do so we had to get creative look outside we started looking at places like phoenix and uh, uh fdny and and what i found was that people were very willing to share whatever they had which was awesome um OFD, and I don't know that OPD was the same way. We didn't need anything. We're OFD. You know, we're the we're we're the best in the state. We have fifteen hundred people apply for twenty positions because we are the best. Our SOPs are the best. Everything is the best. So it got me off my island, which was fantastic because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I just knew we had to do something. So we started it probably about then. And there was a few things that we stumbled upon that we did right that really set us up for success. We didn't wait for the chief to come out with a memo saying that we were doing this. Me and a few guys just hopped in our cars and on our off days drove from station to station saying, this is what we want to do. This is why. Tell us how we can do it better. Make this your team. Tell us what we need to do to be able to get these resources to you. And a magical thing happened, and that's not a Disney reference, uh, but a magical thing happened, and they started talking right then and there. The conversation started immediately. And if anything, firefighters are very skeptical. So why are you doing this? But they had the people, they were asking questions to the people that were doing this. Why are you doing this? When are you trying to get promoted? You know, in our department, in order to make a rank above a lieutenant, you have to have a special project. So, of course, everybody thinks that this is my special project. Um, when are you getting promoted? When, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? When they saw that the intentions were real and pure, they started talking. This is where I was a year ago, and this is what would have helped me. And that person sitting across from them was like, holy shit, I didn't know that you were there. That's where I am right now. And the conversation started. And we were so lucky that it was a grassroots effort. Because had we waited for that fire chief to tell us 
hey, here's what we want to do, we would still be waiting at this point. Um, we hit a lot of roadblocks, a lot of barriers in those early days that we still encounter now, but we were able to find ways around them. So we were able to say, this is important enough. We know that this is happening. If we don't do it, who will? And we were able to find ways around that through our benevolent, through through systems that were already uh, in place, we could just latch on to. Um, so we had a head start just in the fact that people trusted what we were saying. We had UCF in our backyard and UCF, their trauma clinic is, is amazing. It is amazing. Dr. Beidel, a girl named Maddie Mark, she was there at the time. Um, she, she was instrumental in us setting up our team and then having a resource to turn to. Uh, we had EAP at the time. And even then, EAP at the time, the posters on the walls weren't even our, our uh, current EAP provider. So I called just to ask what the process is. And if you've never called your EAP system, do it. Because you'll get a call taker in Connecticut, one in Kentucky, one the next day in New Mexico. They ask you your zip code and they give you four people that are in that zip code. They don't know. I don't think there's any malice in the in the clinician side. They they want to help. They're just not equipped to help. But we had UCF in our backyard. We we made that connection very early. Um, so we were very fortunate that we didn't wait for somebody to tell us go ahead and do it. We did it because there was a need, and and I think that that's something very uh, inspiring about our our service as well. That. Most of this stuff is born out of a need and people refusing to say no in the process. Beautiful. So I worked, like I said, that time, Disney Springs area, that was my area. Before that, I was Orange County, which was the county around Orlando and our hospital, RMC, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about. You had that, you had Station 5, Orlando, you had a dotted line in the road, then you had my first you. So I'm passing pulse all the time. So June 12th, 2016, for everyone listening, I did a week. We had Raul SWAT. We had two of my friends that were rescue medics. And then we had Davis O'Dell, who was the LT in that station across the street. So if you want to hear the whole story from three very powerful, different perspectives, I urge you to listen to that. But for the sake of time, through your eyes, tell me about that day. Yeah, uh, for for us, you no know, being a SWAT guy, we always uh, for us it happens in threes, and and this this is my world here for a second. Just give me the floor here, but uh, I believe the SWAT gods gave us two hostage situations that happened forty eight hours before this happened. So I think they were just kind of sharpening us up and getting us ready, and that's that's the way I think about it. But uh, yeah, uh, get the call. You know, I remember looking at the phone thinking, active shooter, Pulse nightclub. I'm thinking to myself, shit, I'm 25 minutes from the city. An active shooter goes about, what, five, ten minutes? All right, so I'm thinking I'm going to scratch my balls. And I'm ah, sorry, I was not supposed to say that, ladies. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to scratch my butt. <laughs> And it's going to be over, right? And uh, but 
the phone keeps chirping, you know, updates. So I remember getting there and uh and I'm skipping a whole bunch of stuff, but I remember getting there and, and uh moose grabbing me because the word kind of comes down from a pie. Everybody grab the next person and uh take them into the dance floor. And because he's already kind of secluded in the back of the club now. So we go to the main dance floor, which against you know, towards the front by, by Orange Avenue. When we go in there, uh, you know, we, we saw the carnage. It, it was just bodies everywhere. And while I tell people, uh, the bodies, it's, it's, it's tragic. It's, it's horrific. But it doesn't bother me that much. I don't have any negative, you know, type reactions to that. What I do remember is all the phones. There were phones everywhere. The club was dark. The every, you know, the, the lights were on, but they weren't strobing. The DJ before he left turned the music and the damn strobing shit off. And but the SWAT guys. Uh, but the light, the the phones were lighting up that dance floor. That bothers me because my mind went to, who was that? Somebody's mom, right? Brother, sister, significant other, trying to reach out to their loved one. And that bothered me. Uh, so, uh, and you had to turn it off real quick. So I had to grab the next guy, bring him in there. And then we had to turn that off and, and get to the mission at hand which is, you know, killing the son of a bitch, and excuse my language, but uh, that's what had to get done. Um, and that, that's kind of what we did. We just started focusing on killing him or getting people out, you know, and, and, or doing both, you know, depending on what was going on. Uh, and that was the focus. I mean, that truly was the focus when I got there, was just uh, saving any, any more lives we could save and, and, and stopping him. You know, the, the problem that we had, uh, I'm, I'm going fast, you guys, but it came to a point where he was in the bathroom. He had four bomb vests on the hostages, one himself, and there was a bomb in the car, that he, or the van that he drove up there. So we had six bombs. He's in the bathroom. And we're trying to stop this. And so Orlando, much like you were saying about oh, the FD, Orlando, we're the best. I mean, that's, that's the way we kind of walk around. We're, we're the best. And, and we tout ourselves in, in the SWAT team. We're, we're the cream of the crops. So that's how we feel. And so we're a team of free thinkers. And what that means is whether you've got three months on or you've got 30 years on, if you know the solution to this problem, you speak the hell up right now. And that's what, that's what we expect. Well, with this problem right here, with five bombs in that bathroom, one out in that by that van, we couldn't figure it out without everybody dying. And when I mean everybody, that included us. And so, for the only time in my career, and, and for the only time in my career, we're standing around and, and, and we're doing our stuff. And when it, when we had a minute to think and talk, 
these badasses that are around me, these other SWAT dogs around me, we're talking about how we're going to die tonight. And that was, we, we don't, we don't fucking die. We win. We win. But tonight we're talking about dying. And we had to make peace with our makers on that because uh, we were going to blow up. And that was, that was a, that was a different night for that reason. So he's killed a lot of people in the main part of the club. He's basically pushed a bunch into the restrooms. Yep. Just before we get to the, the breach, from your perspective, obviously it's, it's secondhand information. Mm -hmm. The OFD, Orange County, talk to me about some of the heroism that you heard from your guys before we go to, to the next part. Yeah, so I think you, you have to understand the proximity of Station 5 to the Pulse nightclub. Um, most of, of the time when I'm in the cab of the truck, I'm able to formulate somewhat of a plan. That couldn't be the case here. If, if it's as far as that wall to that wall, I might be exaggerating a little bit. It's probably closer than that. There's literally a, a four-lane street, a parking lot in the Pulse nightclub. That's what separates Station 5 from there. So when Lieutenant Odell looks out the, the bay windows, we have windows in our bay, and it looks like a zombie apocalypse, and people are pounding on the doors, there's no time to formulate any kind of plan. It's there, and it's happening, and you're simply reacting. You don't know what is across the street. You don't know how far across the street is. And you don't know if it's, if it's even in a building. The way they described the gunshots is it was so loud. They didn't know if they could make entry into the building because there were talks of bombs. Um, so once they actually had to open up the door, one of our rescues happened to just be transporting at ORMC. And, and again, to give you reference, if this is as far as the Pulse nightclub is from Station 5, just add two blocks to it, and that's our level one trauma center. Um, so we had a rescue truck that was just clearing ORMC. Very aggressive paramedic, uh, very, two very aggressive paramedics. And they decided that they weren't going to wait either. So, so what they started doing was once those doors opened, once we realized, once that crew realized that they could start treating and triaging these people, this rescue would drive up. They would put people into the back of the rescue, and that rescue would just go to the ER, rinse, run, repeat. And it, it was just happening over and over. Um, that bay, Engine 5's bay, Engine 5 never turned a wheel. That bay turned into one of the triage sites. So these people were coming up. What do they see? They see help. That fire station is a help. So all of the people that were able to make it out of the club stopped that Engine 5 for help until we could set up an actual triage spot, which wound up being across the street at Einstein Bagels. Uh, Engine 5 was it. And so... While I was not there on the night of the pulse, the very next morning, I got a phone call. It was 6.30 in the morning-ish. I was there just before 7. I went to Station 5, and, and the light had come up. You know, the sun had come up, 
And I couldn't even imagine what these guys went through because I couldn't even imagine what our guys went through. I mean, the, the amount of blood that was in the bay of, of station five and on the tarmac and on the street, it was, it's almost undescribable. The first thought that came into my head when I was walking up there. And again, this is, this is over. Um, Bodies are starting to be bagged by the time that I was there. The first thing that I thought of was that old Indiana Jones movie, uh, the the very first one, at the very opening scene when he's got to step on the certain blocks in order to not have the arrow shoot at him. That's how I felt like I had to walk up to the station to avoid the blood that was on the ground. So everything happened all at once. There was not time for these guys to formulate any kind of plan they had to rely on training. And again, like like we've spoken about, most of this training is so hypothetical. You're not dealing with somebody who's actually breathing yet dying. It's still not the priority compared to the other people who are around them. So they didn't have a lot of time to react. Once things did get set up, um, you know, we had a we had rescues coming from everywhere and what i didn't realize until afterwards maybe i'm jumping ahead a little bit is there was rescues just outside of there who had a lot of issues following that because they were not allowed to go help like they they wanted to be there and help and there was a lot of guilt about not being able to go there and help this this event affected our whole entire fire department whether you were there or not if you weren't there you were upset that you couldn't be there. And if you were there, you wished you weren't there. So when we were doing the Orange County training, it was obviously the Orange County Sheriff's. We were doing, is it SAVE training? We got that acronym right. And it was, again, hallways, classrooms, you know, was it latch on, all that stuff. And then you have a mic club, you know, with barely any windows, barely any doors. So paint the picture of the access problems you have, of the person and how many people they had, and let's get to the near miss and the actual, um, you know, extermination of this gentleman. Right. Uh, paint the picture of the okay, let me think. <laughs> uh, small nightclub. It's not as big as you may think. I'm not sure if you guys even know about it, but it's not a it's not a huge nightclub. Uh, basically two rooms and this is where you want me to go kind of to explain okay uh you got the main dance floor and there's a wall between it then you've got the back of the club that has like a bar and and, and it's kind of narrow back there and then to the very back of the club is uh you go down this hallway and there's two opposing doors and they're, they're the north and the south bathroom um we didn't i'm not sure if we mentioned this is a gay nightclub i say that because there's four bathrooms in this place there's a men's a bathroom, a woman's bathroom, then down that hallway, you have two bathrooms either side. You can go anywhere you want down that hallway. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if you were male, female, you just turn into one of the bathrooms and went. So at, during this whole thing, that was like, we didn't know about the whole gay nightclub thing or we knew, but we weren't thinking about it. And remember talking to the manager and saying, hey, you know, which one's the men's bathroom? And he's like, no, it's not like that. Now I'm about to break his damn neck. Like, you better fucking answer me. Like, which one's the men's ba bathroom? And he's trying to explain to me this is not like that. So anyway, get off on a tangent there. Uh, so you go down that hallway. He ended up being to the bathroom to the right, which is going to be a north bathroom. Uh, 
he had people in there. There were people in the south bathroom. Uh, we, you know, uh, kind of found out that he's in that north bathroom by talking to people that were in rooms around him. And we also had the robot that went in there, went to the bathroom on the left, and they're like, he's over there, you know. So, uh, but again, everything was kind of slow because of the bomb thing, and he had made contact, and the negotiators were talking to him and that kind of thing. Uh, it was... Um, the guy's coming, so as that's gone on, and he's kind of trapped in the back. There are officers coming through the patio, um, and, and what slowed them down is because when he did the shooting, then he stopped and went to the back. And they're coming in, and the shooting stops. And it, it, I'm not sure if everybody knows the tactics here, but once the shooting stops, we got to slow down. And they don't know exactly the guy, the officers that are coming in don't know where he went. So they've got to slow down and move slow. And now you're going through the bodies because is, is he pretending to be one of these dead people? You know, is he hiding down here? Is there anybody alive? Right? Because there were people grabbing at the legs of officers as they were going through and, and, and just yelling, don't leave me, don't leave me. You know, so a lot of that says, and, and were people playing dead until the officers came? Yeah, absolutely, to survive. Um, want me to go into, so uh, the call comes in about the bombs and, and, and that, you know, he's gonna send a, a, a hostage out in 15 minutes with a bomb vest on them. Um, the crazy thing about that was uh, whenever, I'm not sure how it happens in the fire, but whenever you have one of these things, the captain, I'm not sure what the equivalent of a captain is for the fire department, but they go to the command post and they and they start moving the chest pieces right from 30,000 feet. And we never, I've never seen a captain, the 18 years I was on SWAT, I never saw a captain at one of my call outs because he was always in the command post. Well, when this happened right here, he came out and touched every person that had a gun pointed into that club. I said, if somebody comes out with a bomb vest, they don't do exactly what you said. You got to shoot them in the face. And the captain was looking us eye to eye to make sure he understood what he was asking. And if he saw any hesitation, there's no ill will, moved you aside and went to the next person. Now, he could have been a dick, right? And, and been that one who just you know, did it on the radio. Hey, if anybody comes out with a bomb, best shoot him in the face. But he knew what he was asking. So he made that eye contact. So that happens. They decide to use uh, the explosive breach guys. Uh, any, any explosive guys here? Bomb guys? Yeah, fucking one weird guy. Them guys are weird. <laughs> Love you guys, man. I just think it's, you know, when you get the bomb guys for a team leader, whenever they say, hey, we need the bomb guys here. That tickles us. We got to start getting you guys information, right? You want to know what the wall's made out of, the door frame, the door, right? You want, because uh, then you go in your little pink room and you make a math thing and you come out with a bomb, right? 
<laughs> so that's basically what happened. You know, they called bomb guys when we made an explosive breach into the south bathroom to get those people out as fast as we could before the bombs go off. Uh, long story short, we, they put this shape charge up there and it blows and uh, we finally get that hole in there. We're not in the bathroom. We're in the damn hallway. So we missed it by like a few feet. Um, but it ended up being good because now we got guns on the door of the bathroom that he's in and we're outside the club in a you know, safer location. So it kind of worked out in our favor. Uh, at one point, he, he comes out shooting uh, and, and it was a cloud of dust when he came out because uh, we threw a flashbang in that hole there. and So the cloud of dust, all I could see was a uh, uh, figure of a man and muzzle flash. So I, you know, I shot the figure of the man until the muzzle flash stopped. Uh, and that's kind of how that went down. I'm not sure how far you want me to go, man. <laughs> no, well, I mean, painting a picture, we don't get to hear these specific boots on the ground perspective. Um, one more just area quickly before we transition to the aftermath. Tell me about the near miss, how you almost lost one of your guys. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Told me when he came out shooting, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, when he comes out shooting, he came out um, like Rambo. He had a, a long gun in one hand, handgun in the other hand. I suspect because of the, the the cloud of smoke in there in that hallway that he really couldn't see, so he, so he came out firing. Uh, Nappy, y'all, uh, Napolitano, everybody in the damn team's got a nickname, right? We call him Nappy. Uh, he's only had six months in the team. One of those bullets hit him right in the head. If not for his helmet, it would have killed him. Hit him. Uh, we have a uh, night vision goggle plates that are right there. Hit it right in the plate, right where the, the mount would be. So the mount kind of pushed in, and that's what cut him. And he started bleeding. Uh, this sexy mother. He he. Uh, the bullet hits him in the head. He falls on his ass returns fire from his ass, gets up. At that point, somebody sees him, shoes him back a few feet. He goes back, does a mag change. It's like, and this is tactical shit, I'm sorry, but it's sexy to me. He just does a mag change, like, you know, instinctively and starts walking back like John Wayne. I could have kissed him. I mean, that's the shit that you... You know, you can't, I tell people I can train all the shit, you know, I can give you all the damn, the principles and everything, but you got to come through the door with the heart. That makes sense? So that's Nappy's near miss, and God bless him that, uh, uh, you know, he started bleeding, and then the blood's coming down, and, and, and he's, you know, he, he's six months, and he's like, I think I'm hit, and we're like, you know, it's like Monty Python, right? No, it's a flesh wound, you're good, you know, don't worry about it, you know, you're good, you're good. And, uh, and so... Uh, we skipped over this, but there was an F-150 that kind of became our little transit to the hospital. Remember, it's only a few blocks away, so they threw him in the back of that damn F-150, and it's one of our guys now, right? So the guy that's driving, he floors it, and damn nappy almost slid out the back, almost died twice. God bless him. So <laughs> that's what happened there. Well, again, thank you. Like I said, there's there's so many takeaways. I mean, one, for example, you know, we're thinking about start triage. We're thinking about, you know, all the things that we're supposed to do. And then you have the men and women that just act in the moment 
sometimes they support their department supports them and sometimes they pull someone out of a fire in Atlanta and they get fired. So I think, you know, the reality of some of these unique situations and the way you have to adapt is just a, you know, another, another seed for everyone. All right. So you guys, and when I say you, without the support of your actual department, created a peer support team. Talk to me about the following days and weeks with all, I mean, it was literally on your doorstep, one of your fire, fire stations, you know, they were mopping blood up the next day. What was the impact of that? on your men and women and how did the peer support that was already in place help so much in you know mitigating that yeah so i think you you if i haven't driven at home you have to kind of understand the culture we've been told no for years now this is this is three four years in the making that we've been told no in fact one of the conversations with the head of our hr was he even went so far it deteriorated so far uh, it was myself, our health and safety chief, and our fire chief meeting with the head of HR. It deteriorated so far that she said, what makes you so special? Secretaries kill themselves too. Mm. Um, that was the, that was the uh, environment that we were working in, right? Um, it just so happens. I think I told the story yesterday, but uh, the gentleman that was sitting next to me almost went over the table. I physically had to put my hand on his shoulder. I didn't restrain him. Um, you see me. I'm a I'm a noodle. I'm not restraining anybody. But maybe it just broke his attention enough that he didn't get fired that day. But that gentleman was our district chief, Matt Negley, who later took his own life. Um, ironic that she says that to him and I. Uh, my response was pretty measured. I said, well, if you know that this is a problem with secretaries killing themselves, let's do something about it. We'll help. Let's change the number to EAP first. Let's start with that. Uh, so this is the environment that we're working in. This happens and the support floods in, right? So, so the support from our mayor, the support from our fire chief, the support from everybody. Listen, we know that this is going to be the fallout. We know that we're going to have uh, members who are struggling. We know that we are going to have people who are having a hard time with this. We're here. We're going to help you. We thought... Gosh, what a what triumph and tragedy, right? Like we don't want this to happen, but now we've opened eyes and people know that there's going to be hurt. Um, one of the things that happened in the in the following days was I got a call from my union president who said a gentleman named Pat Morrison from the IFF from up in D.C. said we have help if you need it, and I said thank God because I have no idea what I'm doing. Yes, we need it. There was no roadmap. This this wasn't a common enough occurrence that we had designed what we do after, right? We hadn't done enough before. We got lucky that we at least had the trust before, but we hadn't done enough before. We hadn't built in those proactive measures, and we were not ready for the after either. The IFF came down. They sent uh, a few people that I'm forever indebted to. And actually, that that is one of the reasons why I'm so dedicated to giving back, because when I had no idea what I was doing, people were there to help me through it. They didn't know either, but collectively, we developed a plan. Um, so in, in the following days, we did what would probably look very similar to a CISM debriefing. Um, 
we had people speak up. We gathered uh, the crews together. We were able to take them offline and, and have everybody talk if they wanted to uh, volunteer. But really, one of the one of the things that that kind of empowered our members was to hear people from outside of our organization say, "Look, we don't know what it is that you're going through." But we've been through something similar, and there's help if you ever need it, right? If you don't need it, you don't need it. But if you do need it, and it was uh, it was it was special to to hear people from things that we will always compare ourselves to: 9/11, uh, the Boston bombing. Those people come in and tell us it's okay to not be okay. Our members listened. Um, following that, so so you know we knew that that this could not be it. We knew that we had to follow up with our members and we were able to create a pretty solid roadmap that allowed us to do that. Uh, we would check in with our members. Um, our peer support team went to work and they went to work for a very long time after this happened. In fact, I would say the biggest amount of people that stepped forward to say that they were hurting were two years after the anniversary. Two years after the anniversary, the floodgates opened. But people warned us about the anniversary. They said, pay attention to these things. So three months, six months, nine months, right before the anniversary, we had small units come and we would just kind of talk. How's your year going? What is going on? Is everybody okay? How is that buddy system? We set up the buddy system very early on. If you're okay, perfect. You can be okay look out for the person who might not be okay. And that is really how we, we made this thing happen because following Pulse, after the, the, uh, the memorials went up and things got back to normal and, you know, uh, life went on, we didn't have the support anymore. So we had to rely on the things that we had done on our own and figured out the way that we could do this on our own that did not involve an administration that was not going to support us. And I don't want to sound like I'm super negative, and I know that I do right now. This was a roadblock that we had to encounter, but what this ultimately was able to do was our members saw that we kept working for them, right? We're not getting paid to do this stuff. In fact, we're not allowed to do this stuff on duty, but we're still doing it. That, that gave them the, the uh, trust that we needed to make sure that they could get the help that they got. Um, UCF, huge resource, again, in our backyard. Their program is free. Anybody in the state of Florida that needs a trauma program can go to this intensive outpatient program and spend two weeks there. At the time, it was three weeks, but their program is two weeks long, and odds are you're going to come out much better than you were. So I know I kind of zipped around there, but really the, the thing that set us up for success was that we started well before this. The best time to plant a tree is when? 20 years ago, right? Second best time is when? No, 19 years ago. The 20th best time, the 20th best time is now, but at least this is still a good time to plant a tree, right? So, so we didn't take no for an answer. 
our members knew that they saw how, how we were working and they saw that it was helping the people that they cared about. There are some horror stories from our members asking for help after pulse and not receiving it through any kind of official means, horror stories, letters being written, please help me. I can't do this on my own and being written up for jumping the chain of command. How do you do that? That's what we were dealing with. We didn't care. We had to do it. We had to do something. If these people weren't going to listen, could we save a life by saying we don't give a shit about the chain of command? Because technically we don't fall in the chain of command. We were able to work around it. We were able to find that system that worked, whether it was within our policies and procedures or not, and and get our members there. That was the blessing in this curse. I had Jocko Willink on my podcast twice. First time I told him about the issues in my small fire department and the frustrations. He said, well, you just follow the chain of command. I'm at my chain of command. The ladder has four rungs. And the top two, they've never even done the job. My operations chief was a dispatcher. So sometimes, like you said, within the department, on the union side, outside of that, or even as I did, come outside, freaking, you know, throw fire from outside the walls, you know, squeeze. So I think that's it. Because like I said, with the Disney thing, it's not about talking crap. It's one day it will happen. And you keep putting your head in the sand. And one day the screen's going to be adorned with your first you because you weren't ready. You know, we, I mean, if you are ready, they'll still be there. But imagine if you're not ready and you talk about mental health, imagine knowing that you hadn't trained and all those people died because of you carry that shit. So tangent, sorry. Um, so let's go back to you. I mean, you were literally as uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel John, uh, Dave Grossman talks about the proximity of the kill is more acute for, for trauma. You end up taking this person out. Walk me through the days and months that you experienced and then what OPD provided for you. Much different uh, for us. Uh, so whenever you're involved in a shooting uh, or critical incident, um, you know, those guys, you know, I've been involved in three and I, and I, you get whisked away, you know, you get, you go to detective bureau or, you know, for this, this instance, we went to the SWAT briefing room because there's a few more people involved and we're kind of removed from everything. And, and in this instance, we had to wait for all the alphabet boys, right? Uh, you can wait for FBI, uh, ATF, internal affairs, FDLE. They all had to, FDLE is our state police. Uh, they all had to come talk to us and you know, it was weird and they, and FBI, this is, this is, I've been involved in some stuff and uh, the FBI came and stripped us naked, took every stitch of clothing we had except for underwear and thank God we had clothes in the car, but they made us walk in the parking lot like that. So the parking lot, so I'm only playing, we didn't walk in the parking lot like that. But anyway, uh, the, uh, we, we go home, you know, and uh, we're, we're uh, I didn't get home. They started at two o'clock in the morning. We shot them at five twenty something. I get home at noon, um, and that's after all day from the previous call out. So it was a long freaking day. Uh, anyway, on the way home, we get the text uh, from the captain saying, "Hey, be at the FOP lodge uh, and bring your families." 
I'm thinking, what the hell is this about? You know, so uh, we get there and kudos to the captain. The captain, he uh, he invited every past member of the SWAT team and their families. All of us paid out of his pocket for a barbecue, took the present guys over to the corner, had his little three to five minute speech and then ordered no shop talk. Just go be with one another. Go check on one another. Buddy check. Just go ask. Didn't know we needed that. Didn't know we needed that. That was huge for us. Um, then uh, we had to go to our critical incident stress debrief, and they had a huge one. They went to the high school, and, you know, everybody was there, all, all the different agencies that were involved, and, you know, a couple of SWAT guys went there, you know, and, and we're SWAT. So we went there. I ain't saying shit. People were talking, but not us. Captain again says, hey, we're going to do our own critical incident stress debrief. And uh, he calls a couple of guys that he thinks that we're going to respect from the team. And he, we go to the SWAT briefing room and, uh, you know, the text comes out, you know, meet at 12 o'clock and they're going to cater lunch and then we're going to have this debrief thing. And I'm just like, okay, great, you know, I'll go eat some lunch and I'll be home by one and catch a soap opera. You know, I've never done that shit, so I want to try it. So uh, <laughs> I'm I don't telling you. What, you. I don't believe you. <laughs> Days of to, our lives. I, my mom used to watch the shit out of them. I was like, you know, I'm going to try it one time. So uh, anyway, uh, we get there and uh, the, the critical incident stress guys, they, they do a little spiel. And we're in a big semicircle, and there's 40 of us. Um, and we have, you know, there's there's a couple of warriors in the team. I think we're all warriors, but the ones that we look up to, uh, Scott Smith is one of them, and, and he's the first one to stand up, and he happens to be a deputy team commander. But he's that dude. He's that warrior that brings us back. He stood up and spoke from his heart and said he had some shit in his head that he's trying to square away and he needs some help. And because he led the way in doing that, four hours later, every man in that room spoke. And we realized that guys that weren't even there were hurting for, for not just, just we die together. And that's, the sentiment that we were all talking about there is that it's the first time we've ever talked about dying. Because whenever we're at a call out, we're, we're figuring out the win. Uh, it was huge, though, that the warrior was the first one to speak up because nobody questions that he's a warrior tomorrow. Nobody questioned that shit. And it opened the door for everybody to speak whatever's in their head. That was amazing. Uh, then we had to go to EAP, mandatory, right? Whenever you, you know get involved in a, in a shooting or a critical incident, you got to go to EAP docking. And I did, you know, I did what they told me to do. Like, you know, it's my third time having to go. And I go there and, uh, you know, she opens up the little file thing and Man, you were involved in Pulse. Like, you got to be crazy. I'm thinking like, I'm not denying this shit, but how do you know? Like, we ain't spoke. Like, how you know? So... I went right back to folding my arms, 
you ask your questions. I'll answer the way you think, you know, the way I think you want to hear it. Sign my paper. Let me go back to work. And that's kind of how that happened for us. And then we, I wasn't the only one I guess it happened to. A couple guys came back and we were kind of like, hey, what was your experience like? You know, and, and so it got back to the command staff and kudos to our chief. And he said, I say kudos. He said, uh, I don't know this shit, guys. I don't know the answer. But go find the answer. You tell me what mountain to move. I don't want to hear about the obstacles. You guys let me know. I don't know. I don't know this world, but go figure it out. And I'll, I'll be right there to move whatever mountain. And that was huge for us. We found UCF. Uh, so we're way behind the OFD as far as finding UCF. That was our first hit into UCF. And they were amazing. Um, that they, you know, got there and started speaking to them, and they just talked to us. Um, and I, I, ho I hope that makes sense. I just first couple times we were just talking. I think it was me feeling her out, and and and, and actually the bitch was kind of mean to me. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, You're not so, the only one. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> I'm sorry, but I mean. Because I go in there, you know, and 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 my I was way off the map of what I thought was supposed to happen. Like, you know, when uh, you see those those uh those uh competitive checker uh, chess players that have the little clock thing when they like I went in there and I put the clock down. I hit it. Sixty minutes. Fix it. I kind of wanted to be, be done, and I and I wanted to, you know, and she was like, what? And the hell is wrong. And she just went off on me. And I'm thinking, you're not supposed to talk to me like that. <laughs> you're supposed to be nice. And she's like, where does that say that? Where's that, you know, written anywhere? I'm like, and, but has she been nice? You know, I'd have ran right over her ass, right? So she, and she gave me what I needed for me to sit down like a little boy and, 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 and you know, figure some shit out. And that's when we started peeling the onion, right? And that's after the second, because I, Thought the first one was a fluke. I thought, you know, this bitch got me. I got to go back and I'm going to get her. But she got me the second time. And then, you know, that's when we started talking. So that's kind of how, how our journey went. Um, and I can tell you about, you know, you know my story being different. Because Paul's, uh, the bodies were horrific, like I said, and it's absolutely tragic. Um, but the fucker killed people. He shot at us. I killed him. I sleep like a baby. They don't bother me at all. There's shit before and after that bothers me. And, and there, there are aspects of Pulse that I think about. And I, you know, so remember that, that's, that's when the, uh, remember the iPhones when they used to ring the damn camera light with flash and shit. That's back when that shit was happening a lot. So when that happens, when that would happen, I would think about that, but I didn't have like a horrible negative reaction. Just would take me back there. Right. So that's kind of the thing that, you know, there's other little things that I think about, but yeah, I didn't have the negative uh, stuff. And, and then the therapist, you know, she found that I was crazy. So <laughs> she's like, I'm right. <laughs> so in, in real quick, just to, to tag onto that, that is a lot of what our, response looked like as well and that really shaped how we started doing these outreaches afterwards because 
we brought everybody to our union hall. They took care of the families. Uh, that's a huge component of this. This rocks the community. Not only is our family at home watching the news, not sure where we are in all of this, whether you're on duty or not, sometimes their vision of what we do all day is completely changed by a situation like this. Families are affected. I know my family was even affected, and, and I wasn't even there that day at Pulse. My kids were very affected by this. Um, so they had that family component. We did. We had uh, our, our health and safety chief, fantastic guy, Ed Griffin. I would follow him anywhere. He had, his playbook was a policy that we had written in 1992 that was a CISM policy that said 24 hours you do this, 48 hours, you do 72 hours, is, it's called this. This is, what, this is what it's called when you're doing it this way. This is what it's called. This is where you bring everybody. Um, so we have very large groups sitting in our union hall. They're not going to talk. It's not going to be conducive to this. They're going to listen. Maybe you can provide education still in a situation like this. But when they started talking was afterwards, that social aspect, the breaking bread, we had food for them as well. That breaking bread in these small groups without anybody listening or they thought nobody was listening, they talked to each other. We do it completely different now. We don't gather everybody in a big group. We go station to station. And really the magic in that is I trust this guy. And if this guy speaks up, I trust him enough to know that I can speak up to. Um, we don't make anybody talk about anything. It is all, you can talk about golf, the weather, whatever you want to talk about. Inevitably, when you empower them to talk or not talk, you've just given them a gift to say, I can do whatever I want on my terms. This is my terms. So often after a situation like this, Pulse included, they feel powerless. They didn't get to train the way they wanted to train. They didn't get to respond the way they wanted to respond. There is a lot of moral injury happening throughout this whole entire uh, scene, operation, and the aftermath. If you can give them that little piece of empowerment, they are going to give it back to you tenfold. You can see how fragile everyone was on that scene. You've got certain groups that absolutely created tribalism, healing, fostering even post-traumatic growth. But I think it's very important to point out that if you have a lack of support, whether you're FDNY you know, in 2003, and people don't seem to care anymore, or whether you're an Orlando firefighter that your benevolent has a peer support team, but your city is doing something different, now you're compounding it with organizational betrayal. It's a very, very dangerous place to be. So I want to underline a couple of things. Firstly, the men don't cry bullshit, or boys don't cry. 841 episodes, I have SAS crying. I have Navy SEALs crying, Green Berets, SWAT operators, firefighters. I've got Timmy Gleason who's coming out soon, who was one that every disaster we've been in in Florida, the USAR team, you know. So firstly, that shit is so old school that needs to go. You're really depressing to be around. Is I, what am. I'm hearing. I am. I am. I was singing every single time and they just burst into tears. I have a voice like an angel, a hell's angel. Um, 
but uh but secondly to your point when you have someone who says don't tell me about what you're going through let me start by telling you what i'm going through that is opening the door that's that courageous vulnerability once you open that door and say look i was in a house fire when i was four let me tell you about that i almost died my sister got me out blah, 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 you know whatever whatever it is my divorce you name it that then sets the stage for someone else to you know come tell your story you know whereas if you're kind of folding your arms like you know, what's wrong with you the eap thing then all you're going to do is, is have the same response so i just want to underline some things that you were saying i think it's it's amazing contrasting the two and just what you guys did you know they say if you want to change the world start at home well, that's what you did you didn't wait for someone in some government building to change your department city country you rolled up your sleeves and you did it yourself so so we are out of time i was going to do q a but we have about 97 seconds left so uh i just want to thank these two gentlemen i mean i'm sure the rest of you had the same experience i did i've heard these stories before and i'm still blown away so i just want to thank you for being so courageously transparent and telling your stories today 